Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz. The Seattle Seahawks are 5-0 for the first time in franchise history, and it comes down to the wire against the Minnesota Vikings on Sunday night football. They get the win 27-26, and man, a nail-biter of a game. It had its ups, it had its downs, and here to talk about it is managing editor of Field Goals, Mookie Alexander, as well as John Morgan, former managing editor of Field Goals and contributor, and Mookie, let's start it out with the end of this game. Holy smokes, uh, the Seahawks, they, they do go to 5-0, and but they made us work for that one at the end. Yeah, they did. Um, they played well for about 10 minutes of this game at best, and they still came out with a win. I, I mean, I felt like this Vikings game was a trap game. I, I hate to use that cliche, but Minnesota, I think, is better than the 1-4 record suggests. Um, Mike Zimmer certainly made some curious fourth down decisions and also two-point conversion decisions that helped keep Seattle in the game. But that final drive following the fourth and inches stop uh, of Alexander Madison, that final drive by Russell Wilson, that's got to be up there as, if not his best game-winning drive of his career, and he's got a lot to choose from. It's got to be near the top. Russell Wilson took the Seahawks 94 yards in a minute 42 to win the game, DK Metcalf comes down with the game-winning touchdown at the end, and that was after dropping what would have been a game-winning touchdown on second down. And after that happened, you know, it seems like it's only fitting that DK Metcalf has these moments, but then yet comes up when it matters the most at the very end. John, the the connection that Russell Wilson has with DK Metcalf for him to continue to be on pace for what is it like 1600 yards and, and a crazy amount of touchdowns. I, I, are we looking at the next great receiver here in the NFL? I think he's great right now. And I think that's, I think that's what I value most is that he's great right now. I do. I do disagree a little bit with Moogie about the, the idea that that was Russell Wilson's greatest comeback drive because uh, by my mouth, he was four for 12. It was maybe the most compelling. It was exciting as can be. And if, we want to factor in, you know, heart and drive and clutch and that sort of stuff and just winning in the sloppiest way possible, winning one point. It certainly was one of my favorite. It also one of my least favorite because I didn't want to have to score the touchdown twice. I thought Metcalf got down the first time. I thought that he had possession, he crossed the plane and the play should be over and that it that shouldn't have been, you know, that should have been reviewed and said that was a touchdown. So I was kind of already starting to worry. But, uh, you know, I think the thing I like about Metcalf is that he uh, he believes in himself and Wilson believes in him. And again, that's, you know, very deep into cliche territory. But, uh, you know, from what I saw, he was six for 11 as far as targets to receptions. And so his numbers are always going to be somewhat inefficient. And yet he keeps getting the big receptions. And there's something about that that is exciting, because I think that while clutch is one of those things that can feel overstated and that a lot of the kind of players who would choke, so to speak, are filtered out long before they reach the professional level. There's something special about a guy who just doesn't seem to lose any sort of confidence in himself and can want to be the guy who's targeted on that, you know, the game winning or game losing pass. And so I think that he's special right now. As far as is he going to be a Hall of Famer? I haven't a clue. Um, I think that he, he certainly could be a Hall of Famer. I think that he's got incredible talent. You know, I took a long time before I compared him to Calvin Johnson because I know what that means. But uh, I think that's the kind of player he is. I think he is 
simply a impossible physical matchup for every single defensive back he'll face every every game for maybe the rest of his career. Mookie, you mentioned that there may have been some questionable choices by the Vikings in this game, and it comes down to that fourth down play for them where Cody Barton, for him to to be on the blocker like that and allow Bobby Wagner to make that play to stop them short in that moment on fourth down that gave the Seahawks that opportunity to drive the field. I do question that call a little bit, right? Because they had the ball, they had the ability in that moment to go for three points to put the game up at eight. Then the Seahawks have to drive for a touchdown. They have to also get the two point conversion. But at the same time, you can kind of understand why you go for it in that moment, because you're trying to keep the ball out of Russell Wilson's hands and you saw what happened when they get the fourth down stop. They're able to drive not just 75 yards. They drive 94. But at this point, they don't have to get that two-point conversion just to tie it up. Well, yeah, I had no issue with them going for it. Uh, I mean, fourth and inches at a time when the Seahawks run defense was just getting gashed over and over again. Except, it, you know, there were some instances where they were able to get some stops in short yardage. But, yeah, Cody Barton did make a, a big play on a day when he had the most deceptive-looking 14 total tackle performance in NFL history right? because man, he cannot shed blocks on a consistent basis. I mean, I'm really hoping that Jordan Brooks is that dude. And when he returns from injury, Barton is like the absolute last resort because, you know, this is two weeks in a row. We've seen him just get completely worked in the running game, but yeah, he made the play. Now I had issue with Zimmer and, you know, of course I would rather the Vikings not do this when they got the touchdown to go up 25, 21. They had already failed on a two-point conversion earlier. I think you go for two anyway. And then you, if you get it, you're up six. And knowing that extra points are not automatic in this league, you're compelled to go up by six just so you have that hope of overtime if Seattle gets a tying touchdown. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They kicked the extra point. So suddenly the onus of the two-point conversion went on Seattle. And Seattle ultimately didn't get their two-point conversion. And um, they didn't need to get a two-pointer uh, because they went for it on fourth and inches. If they kicked the field goal, they're up eight. I don't think it would have been the worst decision in the world if they had gone uh, for the field goal, because at that point, you're trusting your defense to deny him uh, from scoring in the end zone twice, essentially. So Zimmer is going to get a lot of criticism for that particular play. I just think Madison didn't necessarily execute it to perfection. Um, and certainly the uh, the block that, that Barton uh, was able to shed, well, not shed, but at least stymie just a bit was, was critical. But boy, it, it's it's fine margins with this defense, because you know, neutral game scripts, they're getting shredded just about every time. And now today, one team actually did commit to running the ball against them and they crumbled more often than not. But week after week in these close games, they've made just enough key plays to give the offense a chance or to at least make a win like against Atlanta or Miami relatively comfortable. To add on to what Mookie said about Cody Barton, his problem with getting off blocks was painfully apparent. I went through the box score, I guess through the play-by-play, and every single one of his solo tackles was after the back or the receiver had already achieved success. Uh, and then his, uh, by my count, his five assists, two of those were after the receiver or the back had achieved success. So it is, like Boogie said, one of the most deceptive games of, uh, I mean, but I think that fans who are informed realize that ta- total tackle numbers are often very misleading. So his biggest play was jamming CJ Ham right into the hole and just stymieing that. And that was amazing. And that was great. I mean, I, I don't think that I could say a single bad thing about that. And it was such a strange reversal after he had struggled so long and so hard to seemingly get off any block 
So that was really, you know, it, it was exactly that kind of game. And it is the run game that stands out to me in this game, John, because I look at the Vikings box score I, and I mean, we felt it throughout the game. The Vikings just had their way running the football all day long, whether it was Dalvin Cook. And when Dalvin Cook went out with the groin injury, then it was Alexander Madison and Madison finishes with 20 carries, 112 yards. Dalvin Cook, 17 carries, 75 yards. You know, if you take Kirk Cousins one run out, out of the books, they ran the ball 40 times. The Vikings did. And then if you take Russell Wilson's scrambles out on the other side, the Seahawks ran it 11 times. Uh, yeah, by my count, they had run 11 times and they had called 37 pass plays because every single one of Wilson's runs was a scramble. And that to me is just mystifying because it's a bad weather game. It was a relatively tight game. I don't feel like the Seahawks were ever in you know, facing the kind of deficit where they absolutely had to pass, where they had to really change their play calling. So it makes me wonder exactly what the influence of this need for Wilson to get good passing numbers, this need for him to be perceived as the MVP is on the play calling, because this was by far the worst play calling I've ever seen from Schottenheimer. It seemed panicky. It seemed inconsistent. There was no uh, balance. Uh, of those 11 runs, three came on one drive, you know, and so it was it was a very strange game. I, you know, it, I could get into even greater detail about just how strange it was and how much it seemed to hamstring Wilson and how much it seemed to really indicate that the Seahawks are best on offense when they're mixing in the run and pass. Yeah, John. So, well, let's get into it a little bit more, because that was I mean, it was very apparent in this game and it was almost like the opposite of the Cowboys playoff loss that started the whole let Russ cook phenomenon. It, you watch this game and you're like, why are they not handing it off in the rain in, against the Vikings defense in this situation? Yeah, it was very strange. Okay, so, so overall, Russell Wilson had 4.9 adjusted not, uh, net yards in attempt. And that means that he performed essentially at the exact same level that Dwayne Haskins has. For the whole season. Uh, but to really put that into perspective, that's that's lifted a bit by the final drive. So if you exclude the final drive, he goes down to 4.5 adjusted net yards in attempt. But that's also lifted by the really strange drive they had right after they ran the ball three times. So they ran the ball three times and then they punted. But then on the next drive, they seem to be getting favorable matchups. I don't know if they had finally pulled the safety in the box by running the ball three times, but all of a sudden, Wilson goes three for three. He gets 52 yards and a touchdown. So there you got 24 adjusted net yards in the 10. So that's stratospheric. You know, that no one ever is able to maintain that kind of efficiency. So if you look at it and you say, okay, let's exclude that final drive because that's not something anyone plans for. That's just him being heroic. That's him being badass. That's him, you know, just being as clutch as possible and willing the team to win and all this other stuff that makes people roll their eyes with good reason. And then you also take out this, this special drive where they just – able to score very easily he gets down to 1.7 adjusted net yards in attempt and to put that into perspective ryan leaf in his rookie season had 1.9 adjusted net yards in attempt so you're talking about levels of efficiency that are similar to the greatest bust of all time or at least when the guys who's in the conversation for greatest bust of all time and so their <laughs> stubbornness i guess i would call it the fact that they seem to want to pass the ball even though it wasn't working that they seem to be passing the ball against uh, very poor looks. The fact that many of the 
sacks seemed to be covered sacks because Wilson was not able to find open receivers. And not because I think the receivers were incapable of getting open, but because they were running right into the teeth of the coverage was just really striking to me. And it, it worries me a little bit because I don't think this is what Schottenheimer wants to be doing. It doesn't seem to follow anything he has done previously in his career. And so I wonder what is influencing this, you know, like, because this isn't just pass first. This isn't Andy Reid football. This is pass as much as possible. This is pass even when it's not working. This is pass to the point where it can potentially lose you the game. And so I just hope that there isn't some sort of weird fixation on getting Wilson counting stats in his pursuit of the MVP because right now all he did was hurt his case. And he's a good enough player that if Seattle calls a good game and balances the run and pulls that safety in the box or do whatever they need to do to actually take advantage of what the defense is giving them, he can still win the MVP. And that's what I want. I want a winning team. And that's going to be what propels them to the MVP if that's what's so important anyway. Well, and as much as it is counting stats, I mean, Mookie, it uh, it did put him in position, though, to get him that fourth quarter comeback. And and to me, those are the bigger stats than than any of the stats that you can have, yards or attempts. Those fourth quarter comebacks, the game-winning drives, and going 94 yards at the end of the game, that is what puts you in that conversation. Well, the good thing is that the voter base for MVP, they're normally not looking up DVOA. I don't think any of them knows what Football Outsiders is, for example. So even if Wilson ends up not necessarily deserving MVP over, say, Aaron Rodgers at the end of the season, they'll look back at moments. And the game-winning drive against Dallas, the game-winning drive against Minnesota, those are examples of big moments. So I look at the play calling. I'm a little worried about the run game because I'm annoyed by Schottenheimer's sequencing of the running plays that he is calling. Because you take away the Carson touchdown, which was absolutely incredible, by the way. He took Harrison Smith for a ride. Um, Seattle's running backs, Carson and Homer, ran for 11 carries for 66 yards. So if you subtract the touchdown, then that's 10 carries for 37 yards. And one of Homer's runs was a give-up draw. It felt like they were running to the outside too often, and Minnesota's defense is fast enough that they could swarm to the ball. So Carson didn't have a particularly efficient day running the ball. And I feel like Schottenheimer and the Seahawks offense as a whole did not exactly play to their strengths of their own running game. And I don't know what it's going to take to have DJ Dallas get some snaps because at least to me in the very, very, very limited tape we saw of the Miami game, he's capable of running between the tackles a lot better than Homer. Now, Homer may be a valuable pass protecting back, especially as he made some key blocks in the final drive, but maybe Rashad Penny after the bye week will mark a significant change in the offense because even though I'm not expecting Penny to be anything special, uh, you know, coming off a serious injury, they may be willing to run the ball a bit more with Carson and Penny compared to Carson and then one of Homer or Hyde. So this wasn't the best call game. Uh, they certainly passed more than I expected them to in a bad weather game. And then once once they fell behind 13-0, it didn't feel like they were in a situation where they absolutely had to pass. And the, the three runs and out in the second half was, was just unacceptable because then that's just running for the sake of it, and then it becomes predictable. The best-looking offense for the Seahawks is that New England game because there was, you know, to, to John's point, balance but neutral game script. It's still Seattle being passed first, and the running game was quite effective. I mean, Wilson was the leading rusher for this game uh, for the Seahawks, and all five of his runs were scrambles. Now, the good of that is I'm glad that Wilson is scrambling again when he's getting out of bad spots. He doesn't have that elite 2012 speed anymore but he's still scrambling smartly. But down the line, 37 called passes to 11 called runs when this was not a great day for the passing game. 
I don't really want to see that moving forward because Wilson did get hit quite a bit in the first half. Yeah. He got sacked four times in the first half alone. And even though two or three of them were covered sacks, there were also other plays where Zimmer was dialing up blitz after blitz after blitz. And even though some of those blitzes weren't necessarily getting home, Wilson was still getting hit. Um, so, and we're saying this, of course, on a day when Dak Prescott sadly broke his ankle and he's out for the season, although he ran on a scr- he got injured on a scramble. But yeah. for the Seattle passing offense to continue to succeed, Wilson needs to get hit less. And, and John has been mentioning, the, mentioning this uh, throughout even dating back to the offseason. And not a great day for the offensive line and not necessarily a great day for Schottenheimer, but they came away with a win. And to go way back to what Brendan had said earlier about game-winning drives, to end my long-winded point, Wilson got that game-winning drive, but he was also part of the problem because that interception was genuinely one of the worst throws I think he's ever had. Not even his worst against Minnesota, but it is also a horrible decision. There was no winning play there. And we can get more into that. And it was that that series of three running plays that really it kind of it seemed to spark this team. Well, and maybe it sparked it after the next three and out by the Minnesota Vikings. But let's come back after the break and talk about just that five minutes within the third quarter where everything became right in this game for the Seahawks. And it was fun to be a Seahawks fan outside of the other, I don't know, 53 minutes of the game. We'll talk about that coming up next. The Seahawks come away with the wind 5-0 for the first time in franchise history. And it really was a section of the third quarter where the Seahawks just everything was clicking for them. After they get a three and out with the Minnesota Vikings, they hit Will Disley for a touchdown pass, 19 yards. And then there were turnovers and, and it got the Seahawks back in the game. Mookie, I, I, I can't think of a better five minutes uh, gosh, in the last couple of years for a Seahawks fan, we saw KJ Wright going one handed uh, for an interception after dropping three much easier interceptable passes last week. Yeah, it felt like the roof was caving in on Minnesota. And then, of course, they go on and score a touchdown after that three touchdown barrage. But still, it was the offense and defense getting it done after the David Moore punt return. And I must add, uh, Seattle special teams does look like an elite unit again. And I'm so glad to say that Michael Dixon, excellent day punting. Moore is not a great returner, but he's good enough. And then Jason Myers hasn't missed a kick this year. But getting back to the offense, they were in rhythm on that one touchdown drive to make it 13-7. That was a nice wheel route pass Disley. And um, the K.J. Wright interception, that was something because that's his first ever interception in a home game. And he had dropped so many the previous week. He also had a fumble recovery after um, Demontre Moore, I think, stripped Zach Cousins. That's right. And it should have it should have been a touchdown return as well if they hadn't blown the play dead because Wright had a clear recovery and a free run to the end zone. But it felt like that was like the 2012-2013 type of Seahawks team where they would just unleash a a, a game-changing run and and the team that's the victim of that, they would end up just crumbling. But Minnesota didn't crumble. Uh, Seattle almost certainly crumbled after that five-minute stretch because not only was the defense getting shredded for long drives, but the offense was not finishing drives. And then to compound that, he Carroll was opting to punt in situations where you had a strong case for going for it. Now, I know that Dixon did an excellent job of pinning Minnesota inside their own 10, inside their own five consistently, but this team ranks last in punts per drive forced. And Seahawks opponents have the worst average starting field position in the league. And none of it matters because they are just giving up first down after first down after first down. And even when they're forcing third down, they're near the worst in the league at that too. 
So um, it, it, again, that third quarter stretch was amazing. It brought him back into the game. But when they didn't sustain it, you just knew that there was going to be some drama at the end. Dixon was fantastic. I think Dixon was the MVP. I think that uh, that sounds preposterous because of what Wilson did. But I think Wilson dug them into that hole to some extent. And what the defense did. All those good punts went to waste. It turned into just 95-yard drives by the Vikings. Yes, yes. But, um, you know, I don't think that you can in any way blame it on Dixon or you should do that sort of, you know, after-the-fact analysis. Because I think that, you know, so Dixon got him on the 2, the 12, the 15, the 15, and the 3. And when he got him on the 15, he actually, you know, it, uh, it was originally up to the 25 after a nine yard return, but there was a penalty. I tend to give him credit for that because I assume that, you know, you can at least give him a little bit of credit for whatever was the condition of the return. Um, but the 60 yard re- really was awesome for me because it was the exact sort of punt that I typically hate because it was so shallow. It never even left the screen. And that's usually begging for a big return. But it was this crazy, ugly directional kick that put the Minnesota returner in such an odd, difficult position that there wasn't much of a chance for a real return. And I, and I think what really excited me is that it seemed like Dixon was moving away from attempting to be a generic punter and just kicking it as far as he can to being a really exceptional directional punter, because I don't think that Dixon does have rare leg strength. I think that a lot of people wanted that to be, or that, you know, that maybe that would be what we traditionally think of a great punter having, but I think that he has a lot of control. And seeing him consistently get the ball to land so deep and not end up being a touchback. And then when he got that punt, which ended up being so obviously returnable, but then it did not turn out to, uh, you know, to to lead to a big return. It made me really hopeful that this is something he's going to be able to continue to do. So I was really excited about Dixon. And then at the same time, I think that we saw some of these post-prime pass rushers who are having, you know, who are none of them are sensational but Mayoya has turned out to be a, a, a pretty, you know, pretty steady uh, pass rusher. I think that he's the only one that they can rely on. Yeah, week the to week. best pass uh, rusher on our team, John. Yes, without, without a doubt. Uh, though I did see KJ Wright get a pressure from a blitz. So I want to note that because I think that's the second time in the last three years. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he, he's good. And, and then Demontre Moore, who was once upon a time supposed to be a first round pick. And he had so many problems. He, he absolutely bombed out the combine. And then he continually got into fights with his teammates until he was cut. I, it wasn't just that he was playing well. It wasn't just that he was, he's clearly a skilled pass rusher rather than a really dynamic, athletic, you know, like, oh my gosh, he's rushing around the edge so fast. I don't know what the quarterback's going to kind of do. He's, he just kind of beats back the blocker through attrition. But afterwards, he was celebrating with his teammates. And it was this cool moment where you could see how Pete Carroll's, you know, hyper-positive posture, where he'll correct a journalist who asks him a leading question that suggests that a player played badly, and he'll say, no, they didn't play badly, even though they played horribly. You can really see the positive culture that Pete Carroll creates, being able to kind of rescue some of these guys, because he was in semi-pro ball, and he's now contributing to a 5-0 and team. And so I think this was like one of those games where it's like, if you wanted to be hyper-analytical about it and objective, you'd say that they just barely won. They just barely, barely won. But if you want to just be fun and you just want to get into it and you want to accept the fact that because this is a zero-sum game, all the you know bits and pieces that went into how they won do not matter. They get the whole win. There was a lot to just really enjoy, and there was a lot to really get into. But you know, to round this back, Dixon was the MVP. Uh, it may not have seemingly mattered with the way the defense was playing, but in just absolute value, 
he had the best, not just the best game I've ever seen from him, but I think one of the best games I've seen from a punter is at least in a small number of punts. He just continually maximized the value of his punts. Mookie, going into this game, I had question marks about uh, the whether the run defense was a little bit of a mirage, or you know, or you could really point to that Cowboys game and say, well, they they stopped Zeke Elliott, and so we actually the, the Seahawks do actually have a good run defense. But after this game, I'm kind of thinking that that Snacks Harrison signing is going to be a helpful signing. Yeah, I, I'm hopeful that Snacks Harrison can contribute. I know that. Judging by our traffic numbers, Seahawks fans absolutely love Snacks Harrison, and who doesn't? His nickname is Snacks, for God's sake. Um, but <laughs> it's like pork know. chop Womack. I mean, uh, yeah, like pork chop. You don't get any better nickname than that. Yeah. So yeah, the, the run defense. I said again in short yardage, like Jaron Reed. I, I thought in the first half had some critical run stops. Yeah. But in the second half, I think they were just getting worn down, and I'm not sure it's necessarily bad run defense as it is. They were tired, and frankly. A lot of that is their own doing by not getting off the field in the first place. But um, yeah, it, I think opponents had come in with the fifth U.S. rush attempts against the Seahawks run defense. So some of the low numbers were, were artificial, um, but still the small sample size DVOA suggested that they were a good run defense. And I think this still can be a pretty good run defense. You know, Jamal Adams will come back after the bye week. And Adams, I think, is more valuable than we than we might believe as mm-hmm. far as being a uh a run defender. So that's going to be critical. You know, they are going to have a gauntlet of, of good rushing teams. So that's really going to be the big test. Arizona uh, at its best can be a dangerous rushing team with, with Drake. And then of course, Murray on, on design keepers and then his scrambling ability, but also the Rams and their great offensive line. And the same with the 49ers who might be crumbling, but Raheem Mostert and just Shanahan's system in general and their cavalcade of running backs. That's the type of offense that gives Seattle fits. But on a day when the run defense was really not up to par, I was actually not too down on the pass defense. Now, Cousins was 27 to 39 for 249, two touchdowns, the pick, and he also had the, the fumble. But his QBR was 60. It wasn't anything special. They didn't allow too many big plays. And I feel like because Adams has been out, they have been less willing to blitz as heavily as they did when they had Adams. So by keeping everything in front of them, yeah, they're still giving up yards and third down conversions and offering up too much space and coverage. But they didn't have too many like backbreaking 40, 50 yard bombs like we saw in the Dallas game, even sections of the Atlanta game. So that is an encouraging development. I hope that Dunbar just had cramps and nothing more because unfortunately Flowers did check in and immediately gave up a catch on a 15 yard penalty that was borderline ejection worthy. Um, but if I want to praise somebody, Ryan Neal in Adams' absence, yeah, he looks like a Seahawky Pete Carroll type defender, and he he might not be a, a, as flashy as Adams, but ever since he was brought in on emergency, basically, yeah, the interceptions are fine. But I'm liking the way he flies to the ball. He got a couple of tackles for losses. I, I think he's a very smart player, and with Neal and Ugo Mati, and I, I'm still holding out some hope for Shaquille Griffin there is a chance that the secondary can gel at some points. Maybe that bye week will help them. They'll get healthier, but there's still a lot to work on with this defense. It starts with a pass rush. And I don't really know how you're going to be able to fix that anytime soon. But like I said, after this bye week, it's a pretty daunting schedule before you get to the more favorable schedule of Philly jets, giants, Washington, that will probably make or break, not just the season, but whether or not the Seahawks are in position to get a first round bye because with this new playoff format and assuming it holds up pending anything that happens with the rest of the season, the one seed can mean so much 
it's less about the home field advantage and more about the rest, especially with fans not in the stadiums for the time being. Yeah, and just to give some more credit to the team, uh, going into this game, after seeing what Justin Jefferson did the last two weeks for the Vikings, for them to hold him to just three catches, 23 yards, I thought that was uh, a huge plus for this game. Uh, Irv Smith Jr., he four catches, 64 yards, and really Adam Thielen was the one who kind of tore it up for uh, for them uh, through the air, and still it was nine catches, 80 yards, so it just... It felt like all those catches were the ones where, you know, he caught it uh, on about a, a six or seven yard pass and then was able to run for a first down on third down. Yeah, the tackling definitely has to be better. There were a couple of plays where they had somebody stop short of a first down and they ended up getting it anyway, whether it was through the air or on the ground. Um, but yeah, Thielen, he really heated up in the second half and Griffin tries he might he did have a key pass break up at the end of the first half. And it was a curious two minute drill by the Vikings because it really looked like they kind of settled for a field goal the entire way and it proved to be critical down the stretch but beyond that I think Griffin can be a good corner but to be a great corner I think you got to be a little bit better than that he didn't have a terrible game he had some nice moments but Thielen is just going to be a tough matchup for him and yeah I didn't see the snap counts but again it, it's a small sample size it the difference between when Dunbar is in the lineup and Flowers is really noticeable and if Dunbar can stay healthy and you have Flowers in reserve role maybe to get the odd blitz package in. I think that there are improvements that can be made on the back end because this is not exclusively, you know, the secondary is, is struggling because the pass rush is bad. The secondary is having its own faults, but if we're going to put some perspective, Adams will be back. He might not necessarily help in pass coverage because we've seen him get torched uh, earlier in the season by, um, by Edelman, but still there has to be some value there. If Griffin could get going, if Dunbar can stay healthy, I just want to be hopeful because through five games, yes, we're 5-0. and oh, It's awesome, but this has not exactly been a daunting schedule that the Seahawks have, have, have faced. So to really take care of those top-tier teams, it's going to take a really massive collective performance by the defense, and maybe it's way beyond their own abilities, to make sure that they are genuine contenders and not just paper tigers kind of beating up on a tough schedule, uh, beating up on a, on a soft schedule, rather. Shaquille Griffin did have two pass defenses on the day. And I want to go back to some of the, the stats from this game in terms of third down conversions, because looking at <laughs> yeah. the Vikings, six of 14, 43%, two of three on fourth down, 67%. So, you know, they, it seemed like it should have been more. I, I thought they were like up around 70 or 80%. It felt like throughout this game. But when I look at this, it's, Awfully hard not to look over to the Seahawks and see them 0 for 7 on third down efficiency in this game. Yeah, 0 for 7, that's striking. I guess the, the best you could say is that typically that tends to vary more within a season, that, uh, and especially if you have a good quarterback. So maybe that's indicative of, of room for improvement without necessarily any obvious room for improvement. But yeah, that's, that sure was painful. And, uh, you know, and as Moogie has pointed out, the, the fact is, is the team seems to be kind of feast or famine, uh, because maybe because it is so dependent on the deep passing game. It often will either just score in a way that makes them look unstoppable. Like they really show on turf or some such thing where it's just, you know, deep passes all the way down the field, but like the greatest show on turf without Marshall Falk to get, get you all those tough yards on those checkdowns and all that good rushing. So I don't know, you know, I mean, it was, it's, it's painful and you expect to lose a game when you're 0-7. And so I guess, I, if anything, I, I almost derive a certain amount of hope from that, 
because I think that indicates that there's room, like I said, room for improvement without necessarily any obvious improvement. And it is very unusual to be a Seahawks fan and watch a defense uh, struggle so much through the first five games. Now, it's exciting that they're able to come away from it being 5-0 and and going into the bye week. And like I said, for the first time in franchise history, being 5-0. and So it, it's hard to nitpick too much. But John, Dan Quinn was fired by the Atlanta Falcons <laughs> today. Yeah, yeah, And I see a lot of Seahawks fans awfully excited about bringing back a coach who is 0-5 this season. Well, I think Quinn's a good defensive coordinator. I, I don't think that it's Pete Carroll's style to fire a coordinator midseason. Um, you know, and so I don't I don't necessarily anticipate Norton will be fired. I think he maybe has earned it. I've seen a, I saw a lot of testy looks by Pete. I mean, I he is such a positive guy, but he clearly uh defines his pride by pass defense. And to just see it to be so poor, I I mean, you know, Pete's been looking kind of pissed off much of this bunch of the year to be to be completely honest. And so, you know, it may be one of those exceptional things where he's just so fed up and he thinks that he cannot afford to be tolerant of how poorly the, the team has played, especially with them being five and zero and having surely their best chance at competing for a Super Bowl in a long time. Um, but I don't know if that you want to change horses. I think that it's more likely that you'd bring in Quinn and then you would do it collaboratively where, Norton would be kind of soft demoted, uh, or at least he'd have some of his responsibility taken away from him uh, in a way that's, you know, uh, face saving. I think that Quinn, his his specialty was defensive line play and finding really creative combinations of pass rushers and run defenders to get the most out of him. And I think that he could come in and do that sort of thing. And it wouldn't really infringe too much on what Norton does or infringe too much on his authority. But I don't know. I think that might be a little pie in the sky. I mean, Carroll has been very good at maintaining good relationships with people who have been, uh, you know, who have left his organization. Now, now, obviously not every single time, you know, he's also had a few people who seemingly hated him beyond what seemed to be proportional to what he had done. But many, many of the people who have worked, you know, either as players or as coaches, he seems to have maintained a good relationship. And that certainly seems to be the case with Quinn. And I think Quinn would absolutely love to get a chance to save a little face. I mean, it's embarrassing what has happened to him. And I, I don't think that you can say he is a good head coach or was ready to be a head coach. I think that he might be maxed out as defensive coordinator, but I think he could be an excellent defensive coordinator, and there's certainly pride in that. And at the same time, he's pretty much the exact same age Carroll was when he reinvented himself at USC. So I, I don't think that Quinn wants to give up. I don't think Carroll wants to give up on Quinn. I think that there's potential there. I think that as far as improving the defense, I think that improving the run defense will hopefully – have other effects on the team. And I, I'm at least a little more hopeful, I think, than Mookie about the chance for the run defense to improve. I mean, I think that he anticipated that it would not be as good as I anticipated it would be. So we may just be both somewhat anchoring to our original expectations. But I I do think, at least anecdotally, because I haven't gone through the data and I haven't rewatched the game, it seemed like they were absolutely getting killed on the edges. And they're slow. You know, without Brooks and without Adams, they're slow. Wagner is a very dependable Bit of linebacker, but he is much more, you know, between the tackles now. Uh, KJ Wright is a fantastic athlete. He's one of my favorite Seahawks of all time. I've said it many times, um, but I think he had something like three tackles, and I think it shows because he he's kind of turning into sort of a phone booth player, which I think maybe fits his new role. But they need someone who can really just stretch out and get those guys, 
And if not fully tackle them, at least either change their path so that they don't, they're not able to build up as much momentum or get a part of a tackle or get something that, that slows their progress or that hits a blocker. And so, you know, they, they mortgaged the farm to get Adams and maybe that was a mistake, but it certainly speaks to how much they valued him and how much they believed they needed him. And so his return I think could be a huge and huge, huge improvement for this run defense, especially. And he's, he's clearly the team's best pass rusher. And so, you know, I, I, I still am hopeful that this team can find its way into that like 15 to 10 range of overall defensive performance. And because of its youth and because of hopefully improvements of the coaching that it can ride a hot streak in the playoffs and kind of make it trivial how it performed in the first five weeks as far as defense goes. But we'll see. Mookie, where do you come out on this uh, debate among Seahawks fans? Uh, just kind of some of the anger uh, around Ken Norton Jr. Well, I use the Field Goals Twitter account to more or less suggest that Norton, through two seasons and five games, there's not a whole lot that he's done to justify retaining his spot as defensive coordinator. Now, with that said, they're not going to fire a defensive coordinator when they've got a 5-0 and record. <laughs> right. uh, so as, as much as I would like to see Norton you know, coaching somewhere else, um, it, it, he's, he's here to stay. So it's going to be up to him uh, to, to make his own adjustments or for Carroll to maybe pull him back and do a soft emotion, as John suggested. But yeah, it, it's been frustrating because it feels like the defense is capable of making some big plays and they have shown it. But these high leverage, high variant situations, they can really come back to bite you, you know, down the line, especially against better teams. The fourth down stops that they were getting against Atlanta on another day, they don't get those fourth down stops, and the game is either closer or those games turn into a loss. Against the Vikings, high variance play, fourth and inches, game on the line, they get the stop. Same thing against New England, goal line play uh, to, to stymie Cam Newton. It was a case, I guess, by the, the, the film experts that Seattle more or less guessed right on the alignment, and they were able to come away with a victory there. So they, they just need more consistency. And when I mean consistency, I mean you, you don't have to be like giving up only 10, 12 points per game, but they need to force some three and outs. They have to force some punts and have to get teams into unfavorable down and distance situations. Now, it's not like they've been defending third and 15 particularly well this season either, but at least don't make it so easy that third and two and third and four are kind of the standard. And if you have third and long, do not give up so many yards that fourth and one, fourth and two comes up and the opposing coach considers going for it because that happened twice tonight with Seattle unable to stop a, a fourth down play. They got the one that they needed the most, but you know, my point remains. So I imagine that the Seahawks DVO is going to take another hit when we, when we enter next week. But again, the injuries are a factor. Losing Bruce Irvin really hurts and not having Adams these last two weeks has changed the scheme and changed the play calling. But maybe some of this is also confidence, especially for a young team, a lot of inexperienced players. I believe that we are going to learn a lot more about this defense, not necessarily from that four game stretch against Buffalo and the Rams and, 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 even the division rivals, Arizona and San Francisco are kind of like on the on the lower end of the totem pole as far as this division race is concerned. But if they are an even average defense, they should be able to dominate teams like the Giants and the Jets and Washington. If they can't do that, we're already going to be late into the season. And then we're just going to have to hope for the best and that Russell Wilson can continue to engineer miracles. Because even on a day where he was not at his best and the offense was not at his best, you're really never out of a game with Russell Wilson unless he's just having the worst day imaginable. He, he is that special. And I'm a proponent of let Russ cook. I'm a pro proponent of a pass-first offense. I just don't want to see that type of game plan again. 
But I, th- I trust Schottenheimer to adjust. I, I, I'm a believer that once this bye week is over and they get some key pieces back, we're going to see some adjustments uh, made to have a better balance and for Wilson to still be efficient and for this offense to still lean towards the pass without just going way overboard. Well, the one thing I do kind of wonder about, though, guys, is that you know, just two weeks ago, we didn't think Chris Carson was going to be playing for another couple of weeks. And he comes back and has a game against the Dolphins where it didn't even look like he had missed a step despite getting his ankle slash knee uh, rolled around by Tristan Hill. And then I, I do wonder if maybe that was if there was just something enough there to, to keep the load off him a little bit with it being in the rain. That's that's the only thing that I can think of in this game is that maybe they didn't want to go too heavy with Carson. But then, you know, maybe why don't you get Dallas involved? I, 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 I don't know. I think you could be right. I mean, teams are always very unwilling to tell you exactly how healthy a player is. I think there is a general belief that players are always in some state of injury, um, something that would probably feel like an injury for the average person. And so, yeah, I mean, Gator got, I mean, excuse me, Carson got Gator death rolled or whatever we want to call it. And I thought that, I mean, the way that he was acting, I thought that he might be lost for the year. And even before that, Seattle seemed to be really emphasizing the Carson-Hyde split, even though Carson seems to be a far superior back. And if we think about last year, I mean, Seattle would have had a much better chance at competing if they didn't have to bring in Marshawn Lynch looking like he was not ready to play football. And so there, there certainly could be a, an attempt to, to leverage the long-term health of Carson into losing a little bit short-term as far as winning game to game. Um, and so it's possible, you know, I mean, it's, it, there's going to be a million potential theories for why they went so pass heavy. I, I want Seattle to pass more. I think I have always wanted them to pass more than what was typical for Carroll, but I still think that because of what Wilson excels at, that they should be building their pass game off running the ball. And I, and so I guess what I mean by that is that you have to build the expectation, the defense by the kind of personnel, the defense puts on the field and the kind of alignment formation the defense has that the run is a significant threat. Now it's possible that defensive coaches are entirely irrational and that they are putting too many players or putting personnel that are too specialized to stop the run on the field when it's just not that valuable, but it seems to work. It, you know, it seems to be at least what is typical in the NFL. And given that Wilson doesn't seem to be, even though he's shown improvements this year, he doesn't seem to excel at long sustained drives. He seems to excel at splash plays, you know, and, and that's not just him. I mean, Lockett seems to be a player who still is probably going to always be on the low end of targets, you know, uh, the number of targets he receives for a number one receiver. And Metcalf is a player that is very feast and famine by himself. I mean, he does tend to drop quite a few passes. And I don't know if that's a concentration thing. He's clearly very young. I don't think he's necessarily got bad hands. I don't want to, you know, knock that and put that label on him or anything like that. But he's an exceptional deep ball receiver that can get separation from anyone. He's got that kind of second gear that makes it so that when you look at the 40 time, a lot of these guys have great 40 times and it doesn't mean anything. But when you watch Metcalf, he's just pulling away from guys wherever he wants to, whenever he wants to. And so what the run does is it allows those passes to have the highest likelihood of success. And so I guess I'm, you know, I, I, I do want them to pass more, but I still believe in a run first philosophy. 
Um, and so that did bother me that they did. They ran so infrequently and so passed so ineffectively and just continued to pass. But it is possible that there is some sort of greater goal, some sort of strategic aim to keep Carson healthy when he struggled with that. He struggled with that in college as well. Uh, to account for the fact that Hyde was not in there and he's the only other real between the tackles rusher they have. And even though I hope that DJ Dallas can be a good player and he looks like um, kind of borrow an idea from the NBA, he looks kind of like a combo back. You know, he's mm. in the NBA, you've got uh, point guards and shooting guards, and then you've got combo guards who are not necessarily all about passing and not necessarily all about shooting. DJ Dallas seems like a kind of guy who's going to be a decent receiver. And he seems like he'll be able to get some snaps between the tackles, but you do not necessarily want to wear him out between the tackles. And we just don't know about his overall level of preparedness. Uh, you know, last week I saw him go up and he he picked up a free pass rusher. And at first it was like, oh, hey, he's good at this, just like everyone said. And then a split second later, the guy was as free as can be and rushing right towards Russell Wilson. And that's terrifying because those kind of guys with full momentum right at your quarterback, that's potentially injurious. And so I, I think that there might be some substance to the idea that heading into the bye week and with Carson already having some, you know, a, a, a big health scare, and having lost him last year and having that, I think, seriously jeopardize their chances at contention um, and with no Carlos Hyde to be able to split carries with, that that might inform why they went so pass heavy. But but if it is another reason, if they simply think that that is the best way that their offense can work because of, you know, uh, just a naive look at how much how many yards a pass gets versus how many yards a rush gets, I think that's a mistake. And I think that's going to lead to not just this offense potentially breaking down, but I just don't want to see Wilson getting hit. I, I, I know there's a lot of research that says rushing the ball is uh, not dangerous, but I, I just do not think that that makes a certain kind of common sense. I think anytime a ball carrier cannot anticipate exactly how they're going to get hit and has incentive to try to break the tackle, then something terrible can happen. And so I want to see them give him downs off, you know, just give him a chance to have no, you know, nothing possibly going to tackle him in a weird way, nothing possibly going to blindside him. Uh, because, I mean, he's the future of the franchise. He's the president of the fan franchise. He's the most valuable player in Seattle sports history, in my opinion. And he is now in the top 20 of the career leaders of game-winning drives in the NFL. He passed Jim Kelly and Joe Montana with his, with his win last week. Wow. He passes Tony Romo. <laughs> Uh, this week, who is at 29, and so he now has 30 career game-winning drives. So uh, he is—he's moving up there, guys. Yeah, he is. I, I just rather we not have too many of those for the rest of the season because this is <laughs> yeah. not good good for my health. I turn 27 next month, and I don't want to be part of that 27 club because of the Seahawks. But, yeah. you, you know, the the if I could just say one more thing about that final drive because I did say earlier that's the best drive game-winning drive Wilson has probably ever had. Yes, he was four for 12. I may be just prisoner of the moment, but <laughs> if there were some good things out of the drops, the Met, the block had dropped first of all, and then the Metcalf touchdown drop, is that they scored with such little time that even though I actually didn't think Cousins necessarily fumbled the ball there, if that was ruled incomplete, there would have only been like five seconds left and a field goal is just totally out of the question. Right. It would have done some sort of hook and ladder play in the rain, and that would have been dead on arrival. So yeah. um, the blessing in disguise is that they did not leave Minnesota with a lot of time by scoring the touchdown so late. They could have gotten it earlier, and that would have been a problem. I actually felt they were moving a bit too quickly for a team that did not make Minnesota use its timeouts. You could even argue that because they didn't use their last timeout, 
a running play with Carson was still in the cards. But, you know, these things ended up working brilliantly in the end. And the fourth down variance on a night when they couldn't get a third down conversion at all, it went their way. And Seattle is not just 5-0. and They've still never lost in Minnesota in the Russell Wilson era. They still never lost in those green jerseys. And we'll see if that holds up on uh, Thursday night against the Cardinals in November because that's when they're going to wear them again. I was happy for that fumble at the end, Mookie, and I'm sure Russell Wilson was too. He doesn't want to see Kirk Cousins throwing any Hail Marys at the end of the game. So that was positive. Mookie, coming up on field goals, the Seahawks are 5-0. and What can Seahawks fans expect coming up here on the with the bye week? Oh, you better believe there's going to be an enemy reaction. I mean, this could be an all-timer. I, I want to know how the Vikings radio announcer melts it down at the end there. And uh, we will have a, uh, a little film breakdown of that final drive by Wilson. Mookie, really want to thank you for coming on. John Morgan, appreciate you coming on as well. And man, I cannot wait to get through this bye week to see what the Seahawks have in store for us through the rest of the season. And it's going to be a fun time to watch. It's been fun through the first five games. 5-0 and for the first time in franchise history. Gentlemen, once again, thanks for coming on. And until next time, go Hawks. Go Hawks.